Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is produced in association with Jazz Times. Singer, arranger, composer, guitarist Jeff Muldaur has always been one of the most inspired and original musical voices on the scene. With his early work with Jim Queskin and Paul Butterfield, to his most recent double album set, His Last Letter, a collection that includes songs from the American folk and jazz blues repertoire, as well as new original compositions. Jeff and I discussed this decade-long project, Jeff's desire to always go his own way, and why this album could only have been created in Amsterdam, with the very special musicians Jeff gathered to realize his vision. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I love that you included Snowy Morning Blues, because it's one of my favorites, one of the first things I recorded. And people haven't mentioned James P. very much on this show. So, of course, it's near to my heart. So start out talking about that. Well, it's one of my favorites, too. And uh, I even had the sheet music for a while. I was going to put it on my last album as a chamber piece, but COVID came along and I said, I guess this album's finished, you know. And a friend of mine in Stockholm, uh, Lars Johansson, worked it out on the guitar beautifully because uh, I gave him the sheet music. But also, as a, as a kid, way back when in my brother's room with all those 78s, I heard Preaching Blues by Bessie Smith. And in the middle of James B. Johnson's solo is that lick that turned into or had been Snowy Morning Blues. So you probably already know because you're a student of the game, uh, but Snowy Morning was recorded a month after Preaching the Blues. Just wanna teach you how to save your good jelly roll. 
Going on down the line a little further now There's a mini pole woman down Read on down to chapter nine Women must learn how to take their time Read on down to chapter ten Taking other women, men, you are doing a sin Sing them, sing them, sing them blues Let me convert your soul Lord, one old sister by the name of Sister Green Jumped up and done a shimmy you ain't never seen Sing them, sing them, sing them blues. Let me convert your soul. You're nodding your head. You know this stuff. Well, and I'm thinking, no, no, I had heard it. And, and because I revisited it, thanks to you, I was listening yeah. to that again. And I caught that. And I was thinking yet again how we can have these ideas that we that just happens spontaneously as jazz musicians. And if we're paying attention, we will think, ah, there's a great melody. I'm going to pursue it. Or in your case, working with Benny Carter, I love, because he was one of my early supporters. Benny really was the one that said, Was he a beautiful man or what? Oh, the best, the best. And this is, I, I say this for the younger people listening to the show, that... Back before email, you had to call, you had to send a letter, something like that. And when I got to Europe for my first big jazz festival, I found out that Benny had called some musicians that he knew were going to be in the festival and said, look out for this girl, because I was so young. I was the only girl in the whole festival. And he said, you know, she's a skinny blonde. You're not going to think you know, you're going to think she's a groupie, but take care of her. And he, he was that generous and took that time to do it. Now, oh, many had to call Europe to do that. No, he's, so, he's ridiculous. And the he was amazing. The session we did with him was historic. You know. Well, and I want you to talk about it because the session, but also I loved your recording of G-Baby, and that's one of my favorites, mm-hmm. but also the fact that you got this idea that you were already thinking about a different kind of arrangement. Talk about that. And then years later, well, yeah. you did it. Well, the Jug Band did it. And the thing about the Jug Band, the Jim Queskin Jug Band, that was my first, you know, way of just, I guess, becoming a professional musician, right place, right time, you know. I mean, we were on television within months of formation. You know, people... I don't think this kind of thing happens, but in any anymore. But uh, uh, we did a G baby, and and for some reason I wanted to do it uh, with a minor beginning, you know, instead of that major, and it worked beautifully. We had this altered dominant thing going on with it, and because that was my ears, you know, that's how if I heard something, we would even have a thing like if you were singing the melody, and we came up with a chordal idea. And it didn't fit with the melody. We would just change the melody. We were just revolutionary. <laughs> so, uh, so with G Baby, by the time I learned a bit of my craft and in the 70s and got a chance to 
do a chamber arrangement of it. I was already making an album and we had picked this, you know, this great uh, tune that uh, Bryn Crosby did, uh, having a wonderful time, you know, living in the sunlight. And we got Benny to do the arrangement and into the studio came, you know, the all-star of, you know, there was like Taft, Jordan, and uh, who else was in there? Bob Wilbur was in there. And, uh, and who, oh man, the, the uh, Russell Procope and Benny Morton. And it was like three or four Ellington guys and, and Doc Cheatham took solo after solo. And there's something that's interesting, Judy. Every solo that Doc Cheatham took on that tune came from a completely different place, out of a different slot. It was unbelievable. Folks today, they'll get a solo in mind and they'll sort of stick to it. And then you go take two and they'll play about the same solo. Oh, no. So you go, well, how about this one? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, and Benny and I showed Benny my arrangement that was coming up on the piano a little bit. You know, I can't I go play piano, but. Uh, and he he looked at him as you read and said, Jeffrey, you've gone modal with this. You know? and, <laughs> and, uh, and I did and I had and, uh, you know, and then I got to re-record this with slightly different instruments in Amsterdam recently, you know, as part of this extravaganza, the magnus opus that I got lucky enough to record. So, and Benny was so great. I saw him out in uh, Oakland. He was way down at the end of this long corridor, fixing his trumpet, getting ready for a second set or something. And I just wanted to say hello. And he looked around. It was years after that uh, session. He looked around and said, Jeff, you know, as it, you know, and I wouldn't have expected, I was going to have to remind him who I was and everything. And you, you knew him. He just was an immediate connector and a beautiful man. Makes me treat you the way that I do Gee, baby, ain't I good to you There's nothing too good in this world For a girl like you Gee, baby, ain't I good to you I bought your fur coat for Christmas Bought your diamond ring A Cadillac car Most everything Love makes me treat you the way that I do Gee, baby, ain't I good to you? My guest, Jeff Muldauer on G-Baby Ain't I Good to You, from his double CD set, His Last Letter. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I asked Jeff about making his last letter and pursuing the project over a 10-year period. Well, I used to drive Warner Brothers, and I used to drive Mo Austin crazy, God bless him, just because I'm just... 
except for the Bix album I did, I've never been a concept uh, album guy. So I just want to get started, uh, you know, roll tape. Uh, I've got a tune here. And then, well, now what do I feel like doing? Because I would say to Mo, why don't we just get the concept together after I've made the album? You know? <laughs> so, uh. you know, I just wanted to get started with some of these chamber arrangements I had already written and performed. But when I got started in Amsterdam, eventually I ended up with, with players that were exquisite, as you may have heard. They're exquisite. Uh, it's their music, they, this classical thing. Those folks in Europe invented this stuff. They know what they're doing. Oh, it was unbelievable. I learned so much. They were my teachers. And they wanted me to, you know, that I was an odd enough thing to get involved with that they they enjoyed it. You know, as great as Beethoven is, if you're playing Beethoven's seventh for the 18th time in the orchestra and you're sitting there as a bassoonist in rehearsals where for two hour periods you're not even asked to play while they're working with the strings, you're happy to have a odd project. And it, it was so much fun. I have friends for life in Amsterdam, and I love Amsterdam. You've probably been there. I was struck by how natural it was, which meant something to me because these arrangements are so so fresh and different from the approach that's normally taken with these songs, with this repertoire, but because you had those musicians who were so beautiful with it and the combination of that with your voice, especially, which takes it in a whole other direction, that wonderful juxtaposition and mix with this, that it's just... It's really lovely, and it it made me think that in an earlier time when a lot of this music was created that you and I love so much, that you had a lot of orchestra players, but they they knew this music in their own way. You know, who could swing? You know, back then. Now it's hard to get orchestra players to swing, but then they knew the, this music, and. 
But somehow this, it did swing for me. It was just so, so natural, such beautiful musicians. Octet in Three Movements, Homage, from my guest Jeff Moldauer's two CD and two LP release, His Last Letter. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. We were fortunate to have a great producer in Herjan Bloom, uh, who is a director at the Metropole Orchestra, and so he knew how to talk to people. Uh, mm. We were both working on folks, but some of them you didn't need to talk to at all. It was just pretty amazing, mm. to tell you the truth. I got very lucky there. And uh, you're really inspired by by these people, by the country, as you said. I found that interesting to read about in your beautiful liner notes. It's and no, there's, there's hardly any fear in the air, you know. And the children are mm. happy. The children are oh. happy. Oh, mm. so the whole vibe is different. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So it reminds me of the late 60s in the States, you know, before mm. the takeover started. <laughs> <laughs> That's so sad. So true, but so sad. No, 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. But I think it was well said. Well said. I was thinking, when did Jeff first have this concept of using these different instruments. And then you helped me out by answering that question immediately in your liner notes, talking about going into Jimmy Ryan's oh, and hearing yeah. Garvin. Yes. So talk well, about that. That's a little I mean, before was, your time, I would think. I went to Jimmy Ryan's actually. Okay. Oh, good. I did. There was a Jimmy, there were different incarnations. And in fact, yeah. my big sort of breakthrough was sitting in where I met Roy Eldridge and he oh, was taking geez. a break from Jimmy Ryan's to go over to, to uh, Eddie Condon's and he was having a drink and I went up and introduced myself and you'll, you'll love this. This is perfect for you because you'll get it. And I said, hi. And I was all happy. And I was, you know, 25 or 26. And he said, what do you do? <laughs> you know, Roy, cranky Roy, what do you do? And I said, I play stride piano. And he said, prove it. Play a handful of keys. And I said, sure. Ooh. And he was so <laughs> he was so stunned that I knew the tune. He called the band off the bandstand and said, this chick thinks she plays a handful of keys. And up I went and played the tune. Well, so, yeah, you know, that was. You are a ringer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, talk about your time. This was this was fascinating that you heard him and it gave you this concept or gave you yeah. this idea. So talk it about did. that. Just, well, and the jug band was part of that. You know, um, I started arranging without knowing what I was talking about right from the jug band. You know, I probably did 80 plus percent of the arrangements. Just said, no, what about this? No, what about that? You know, before I 
you know, and took private lessons at Berkeley and did all that because I eventually knew I had to communicate with people that weren't in a jug band. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so I did learn a bit of craft, you know, Uh, not enough to hurt Uh... me, I don't think. You know. That's interesting. And I think for the listeners who won't won't know exactly what we're talking about, it's being able to communicate these things musically. And I know what you're saying, of course, and because you'll say, oh, I this sounds good. Try this. Mm-hmm. But I understand and right. sort of translating that. But you heard. But talk about hearing Garvin. It was. Is it Bushell? 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 How do you Bushell. say it? Bushell? I, I used to say and, Garvin Bushell. But, yeah. Know. And so you heard him and that's what I sort heard of set him play the bassoon. On St. James Infirmary, and I was astounded. I didn't have mm. classical uh, upbringing in any way. I don't know that I had ever seen a bassoon before. You know, and I might have been seventeen or eighteen or something. So mm. it was, um, and I've sort of maybe it just triggered a little rebellious thing in me. Of I never wanted to imitate any anybody. Uh, you know, very early in my vocal, I would hear wonderful black country blues singers, and maybe they affected me for a little bit, but not very long. Uh, I found my own voice, uh, and probably as as uh, influenced more by Lonnie Johnson and Don Redman uh, with his Sprecht, and um, so. Uh, like I said, the jug band was that way where we'd come up with, you know, we'd do a tune and all of a sudden we'd overdub penny whistle or not penny whistle, but slide whistle and timpani, you know, in, you know, you know, and just any idea we would come up with was okay if we liked it. And when I got into later stuff with Paul Butterfield and, and later doing these arrangements, I would too, if I couldn't, mess around with a tune and come up with something different, I just wouldn't do it. And the jug band didn't mm. do it. Mm. No, we, could, we made a mess out of uh, Christopher Columbus. Uh, you know, it's very hard to touch Fats Waller because it's so complete, you know. But we found ways, you know. We'd find little instrumental uh, things to do in the middle of these tunes. and It was, it was fun. Christopher Columbus Sailed the sea without a compass When his men began a rumpus Up old Christopher Columbus Yeah, here's what he said Christie's crew was making merry, yeah. Then they all gave a cheer for Isabel. Tempo to the carousel, no more mutiny. What a time it seemed. With diplomacy, Christie made history. A 1966 recording of my guest, Jeff Muldauer, with the Jim Queskin Jug Band on Christopher Columbus. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is jazz inspired. And you mentioned Fats, so talk about Fats Waller, of course, who's close to my heart, and your Jitterbug uh, Waltz. Well, uh, Fats Waller was a generational 
uh, link in my family. There were certain people, Mildred Bailey was one, where we all loved Mildred Bailey. We, uh, we all uh, loved uh, Walter Houston singing the September song. So, and Fats Waller, the same deal. I mean, my mother could listen, I could listen. And it meant a lot. That meant a lot in my my house, you know, before I got into the doo-wop and the, you know, the funkier stuff from New Orleans. And we, we started to part company. There's where you have trouble defining what jazz is. Mm. Uh, you know, it was so universal. Some of it you can't even call jazz in a sense. I mean, it's it's popular uh, with the with the stride in it. I don't know. It gets confusing around him, uh, around Fats. And I also now you're the pianist. Uh, is he right up there with one of your favorite stride people? Oh, absolutely. He is my favorite. Okay, he is you. my favorite. Okay, we can. Yeah, continue. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Because well, I loved Basie. I loved Basie when he was striding, but I think even Basie would have said that that Fats was his favorite because Fats had a, for me, had such an incredible power in locomotion, but at the same yeah. time was so light. And yeah. a lot of the stride players were very heavy, and they didn't have, in my to my ears, a great command of dynamics. And Fats oh. could do it all. He could be he could be roaring away and break your heart because it was still so delicate and tender. He was just amazing. Yeah, he's he's like he's. No one can see me because we're on radio, but I'm putting everybody else here in fats up there. So yeah, he's my favorite. Me too. And and about the jitterbug waltz, of course, we all lived with that tune. And uh, Homer and Jethro did it. I love that recording. I love their the, version. Oh my god! And. Uh, also, you know, as I wrote in those album notes, I was playing, I mean, just a simple little way of playing the Jitterbug Waltz on Bobby Charles's piano down in Louisiana after a rough night, you know, typically rough night. And, uh, and Bobby said, what's that, Jefferson? You know, I said, well, that's the Jitterbug Waltz. And he said, well, that sounds like a string of hearts to me, a string of hearts. And he wrote a song with that melody, which was pretty beautiful. And mm. uh, uh, and I think that kept my interest in the in the tune going. Plus, I felt it really fit the players in Amsterdam, because mm. I knew Margrethe, the great bassoonist, would kill it, and she did. And then when the accordion player, this button accordion player, he came out of heaven. This guy. Uh, Hertwattenauer, my God. So I think I wrote that once I got going with everybody and I said, this is good for them.
I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Our show is made possible in part with generous support from Steinway & Sons. Additional support is provided by Jazz Times Magazine, providing entertaining and provocative coverage of the jazz scene since 1970. On the web at jazztimes.com. For a schedule of upcoming programs, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can listen to Jazz Inspired on your favorite podcast platform and email us at info at jazzinspired.com or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Stride Queen. Although we broadcast on NPR stations, we're an independent production not funded by NPR. Please visit jazzinspired.com to find out how you can chip in and support us. No gift is too small. And please write a review on Apple Podcasts, which is the best way for us to entice others to listen to the show. Thanks for helping us spread the word and celebrate 22 years on air. I have a new book celebrating this anniversary called Great Inspirations, 22 Years of Jazz Inspired on NPR. Go to judycarmichael.com for more information. I'm talking with musician Jeff Muldauer about his double album release, My Last Letter. Talk about The Frog. I loved it. (laughs) Well, that is the finest piece on the album. It is. (laughs) It's so wonderful. You have to talk about it in the backstory and everything. It's very funny. I laughed out loud. Uh, my daughter, Claire, was obsessed with frogs, and she eventually had a frog stand on Martha's Vineyard. That's where she grew up. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know how old she was when I wrote it, but I just got at the piano and found this thing and wrote it down. And it's, it's it marinated for quite a few years until once again I said, my goodness, I could move this onto these instruments and it would work just beautifully. So it was for my daughter. <laughs> It was a little piano piece for my daughter that turned into a little chamber piece. (laughs) ¶¶ 
Heavenly Grass. Talk about this track. It's so beautiful. I loved it. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, I heard these these uh, Tennessee Williams poems on an album, and I guess Heavenly Grass was the is it the first thing I came up with? I don't know. That one fell out of heaven, Judy. You know, sometimes things just fall out of heaven. That that guitar arrangement uh, and the the thing I did with it. Um, I can't talk much about it, except I will say that I tried to write music for other poets. I wrote, uh, we recorded some things for, um, I wrote a solo violin piece for a Pablo Neruda poem. Uh, But I did it as a spoken thing Mm. because he doesn't swing, but Tennessee Williams swings. And so I would find a when, and especially when he recites his own poetry, it is just marvelous. You know, the yeah. southern gay, lispy, swinging kind of sound that I just love. Oh, and me too. So I caught on to that, and uh, the heavenly grass. When I I hadn't expected to write for clarinet, but this clarinetist Hans Kolbers turned out to be one of the finest clarinetists in Europe and once again I said okay embrace me (laughs) (laughs) I wrote him a part I wrote him a part that he did embrace me and it was on the fly Mm. I mean it was all live all these vocals are live except one Mm. I had a bronchitis but it was so much fun recording in that way which you probably do uh, mm-hmm. everything's live but you know in our biz uh, most of the time we do overdubs and stuff but uh, it was especially wonderful to uh, I had been through two clarinetists at, uh, when I was running it by I didn't want to take his time so I ran it by a couple of clarinetists and they couldn't do it mm. that high section I have a clarinet so I, I knew the fingering was easy but it's just the range of the thing and the choice of the read that was difficult. Uh, and he just, he just, he just gobbled it up. My feet took a walk in heavenly grass all day while the sky shone clear.
Then my feet came down to walk on earth, and my mother cried when she gave me birth. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm talking with composer, vocalist, and instrumentalist Jeff Moldauer about creating music that is both familiar and completely original. But you know there's this guitarist named Richard Thompson. He's so good at playing the guitar. I remember meeting him when he was a young man, and I realized later we should have killed him then. He was that good. (laughs) And so... He became better and Missed better. Missed opportunity. And, better. <laughs> and I even did a show with him at Sanders Theater up here, Cambridge, where I caught him playing Meadlux Lewis's Honky Tonk Train on the guitar. I said, that's not, you can't do that. He was playing the triplets against the... Right. I know. How is that even possible? I don't know. He said, I said, how did you do that? Oh, my father had that 78. I said, get out of my dressing room. You know, that kind oh, of... Yeah. But anyway, I started playing Heavenly Grass. And he said, I don't even know what that is. I said, that's the idea, Richard. (laughs) (laughs) Good. I like that story. I like that story. It is the idea, really. Because, and I think that speaks to my musical religion, which is I want you to love something I do, but not 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 quite know what it is. Mm. And, and so if, if I were more schooled and, and more tending to do something within certain parameters, I wouldn't have these things like Heavenly Grass that, you know, I say, oh, what about this? You know, and then I come up with these things and I don't even theoretically know what I'm doing. A lot of the time I could tell you what it is in a while and sat down with it. But I hear things. I hear things when I'm walking the dog. I hear things. I just hear things. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes they don't they don't fit, but I make them fit. <laughs> when we were coming up, there weren't lots of jazz programs in right. school. Right. And so you couldn't be studying it as everyone is now. It's a very right. different approach. But that made you you were forced to take your own path. It's why before we were on mic, you were asking me how I learned this because you were curious. How did this girl learn how to play this music? Because there weren't, everything wasn't transcribed. I know I had, I used to write for a music magazine early and it was just little, a few lines of simplified stride. And the editor hired me to write a book of stride because he wanted to learn how to play stride. He knew he wasn't gonna sell any books he just said, let's let's just do it. You know, for me, I'm selfish. Well, we wound up selling, it's the smartest thing. Well, I won't, I can't take credit. It's the m- biggest success I've ever had. That book has been reprinted and reprinted because that kind of thing didn't exist. And so I love you saying that, that you hear things and you figure out a way to make it work. And there was a wonderful quote too in in your introduction of the liner notes that Lester Young, the great saxophonist, his advice to all young musicians, tell your story. I love that because 
even when we start out, even if we're just listening to somebody and trying to do what they do, eventually you, you should be telling your story, which I feel you've always done. You seem to have a natural inclination to just go your own way from day one. What do you attribute that to? I have a bad attitude. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. I just don't want to fit into, you know, things. But, you know, like with you there in Southern California, you had something in you that had to come out. And you found something that resonated with you. And you fell in love. Yeah. And that's what's happened uh, with me. And, And also during the Amsterdam project, another thing that happened was... I decided at some point, you know, why don't we just start from my the marrow of, of the bone here and not arrange, let's compose something. Mm. Right? And so I made my first attempt at a real composition, as you know, and I'm sure it's, you know, got warts, et cetera, but there are sections of it that I quite like. And, I, and the musicians enjoyed it quite a bit that nine that nine mm. in the overture is that'll that'll make you do a pratfall uh, <laughs> it's a tough <laughs> nine. it's an unknown nine i've held on to that nine uh, for many years saying i gotta i gotta use this sometime i used it in a tv theme once with horns with howard johnson and faddis and those guys but I said, no, this is going to be this is going to be a classical composition someday. So it's there. It is. I've done it. last letter so talk about this and 
finding that and what that was like and then writing this this piece and which is so beautiful and so moving talk about well, this thank you judy gee i'm enjoying this interview um, <laughs> <laughs> oh it is it's so beautiful i've just listened to it over and over and i was so thrilled when i got it and so so talk about this story because it's lovely and i the being able to have that connection with yeah. a relative and read a letter that's just so deep yeah talk about that i uh, uh, amos garrett wonderful guitarist uh, who I played with, we had a tour, a book for Japan, and I think it was 77. And uh, there was a fellow staying at my house in uh, Egertown, my old house, I wasn't living there. I think I was living up in Chilmark, Martha's Vineyard. And he said, oh, I found this box in the, in the closet. And I said, what? He said, yeah, and there are all these letters and all these pictures, and in it was an article from a New Jersey paper in 1870 uh, about the, the uh, demise of my great-grandfather, about his ship being rammed and sinking in Yokohama Harbor. And years later, and well, in that case, we got in touch, and you had to phone Japan back then. We... we called the promoter and said, we'll be looking for the grave of my great-grandfather in Yokohama. And he had booked us in this little club, but he changed it to the Yamaha or whatever, some big 800 to 1,000 seat place, which we sold out. They just go for this, you know, ancestor thing. I mean, it was great. And, uh, and I did go to the grave and the guy who was the guy down the hill who was lighting the incense for everybody. He knew just where it was. Oh, it's my great grandfather's name was on the obelisk that was in there. In any case, uh, years later, uh, the be maybe, maybe even the beginning of this project, but maybe a few years before, I got a, a, a box sent to me by the estate of my cousin, and in it was this letter which, that my great-grandfather wrote the day before he died. Mm. And, he was, and it was a love letter sent to my great-grandmother, Elizabeth. And I read it, and it was so beautiful. And, the, and this, uh, this octet started to come quickly. Please. 
We touched on Bix earlier, but he's such a huge influence on you and a favorite. And I sort of referenced you going to his house and seeing it, but then we went off in another direction, as I can tell you and I keep doing. But I'm curious about that because what that meant to you being there and absorbing that, because that's one of the things we get to do as musicians. We've traveled a lot and we appreciate environment and air and feel and everything we get in these different places. So I'm, I want you to talk about that because I think that's one of the great things of the musicians I know. People talk about being in the moment. We're really in the moment. We absorb that moment in a different way. And I was very touched by that story and imagining you there. It's our fortunate meditation, you know. Uh, I think the, because we've already spoken about this, I think the, the Bix, going to Big Spiderbeck's house and those people were so nice to me. Uh, I went out to Davenport and they just loved the record and they wanted to show me everything. But when we went to the house, it was sort of like I was on a tour kind of thing. I didn't, it was like getting a little boring. Uh, there was a, a gal there telling the same things she would tell to anybody. And I noticed that upstairs was this room. And I just snuck off by myself. And I think, I think that speaks to you and, and, and people like us who we, we have our own little secret world we want to explore you know and and standing in that room was unforgettable you know I mean I could because I remember it was like being in my little room as a kid and had longing and it was Louis Armstrong that got me out of where I lived which wasn't easy as a child and it, it, it was that music and those sounds you know sitting on my bed playing a little clarinet along with Louie and stuff, you know. And uh, so I, I imagined him listening and hearing those those boats. And, you know, I, I, I... The other thing, you know, that we realize in time is we meet all these folks, some beautifully, you mentioned Benny Carter, and then, you know, the troubles of Big Spiderbeck and everything. There seems to be a disconnect with character and talent. And it, it took me years to accept that. Mm. that. That a musician is a vessel, uh, that it doesn't take this rich and beautiful character to produce these beautiful sounds. Mm. It's, it's a tough thing to, to grasp. I saw Muddy Waters one time end a show where he... He sort of hit the guitar. Boom. She had the knife. Choo. She had the knife. Choo. She had the knife. And then he looked at his watch. And then no. <laughs> to drive me from her door or something, right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> went, okay, this, that's all. I know that is cold. And I said, That is so cold. <laughs> and I said, Okay, this guy is a vessel. You know, there's so much soul in there. You can't, you can't. Uh, believe it and uh, so uh, being in the Bix room there, there was a spirit in there let's face it mm, and you must have felt mm. the same way about Bix uh, oh my gosh and and he's 
Well, he's always been a favorite on every level, but he also speaks to what we've sort of the theme of this conversation, which is going your own way. And because everybody heard Louis Armstrong and they all went that way. <laughs> a lot of them did. That's right. And That's right. Bix didn't. Bix didn't. Or Bix was. Those guys in the Midwest. They all chose mm-hmm. their. Not they all didn't come up with great sounds like Teschmacher, but they, for some reason, that area, they weren't copiers. They weren't, they weren't copycats. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. there was more influence from the classical world in that part of for some you know and everyone had pianos mm-hmm. uh, and uh you know they he used to go bix used to go to stravinsky concerts and ravel and he just loved impressionistic music and so we're back to the same thing as as, as what you, what you said about uh you know being yourself One of your favorites, not surprisingly, is also one of my favorites, Jelly Roll Morton. And his version on this tune and then yours is so interesting because his, well, talk about this. Talk about Jelly Roll Morton. Well, he was one of my earliest escapes from where I lived. (laughs) Uh, And there was, there were, I guess the 78s were there as well as a, an album because I seem to remember the cover, but there were those piano pieces, you know, with Mamie's blues and, and this one is Michigan water. I always felt it started on the wrong beat or something, but it didn't. And I think it, it, even as a little boy, I think it just like hearing Garvin Bushell play the bassoon, I think the sort of classical nature of that descending lick in Michigan Water started me on my life of, you know, musical crime. (laughs) (laughs) Where, you know, sort of like, okay, he's supposed to be playing in New Orleans and this and that, but there's there's something else going on here. And then, of course, we learn how culturally rich the world was around him in New Orleans, which I, of course, didn't learn about till later. I lived in the quarter then when I was you know, young lad and everything. And the, the, the meeting of this, of this Haitian and classical and Spanish and all these things coming together to make that music. Tastes like cherry wine. 
my soul, my gals got a black cat bone. Yeah, it's a black cat bone. She go away, but she sure to come back home. Michigan water tastes like sherry. I played tennis this morning and name dropped on everybody that I was going to be talking to you today. They were all duly impressed. So I'm not above that sort of thing. So I could tell you that. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. This was so great. I just loved it. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure. You know that. You've been listening to my conversation with Jeff Muldaur. I hope you'll join me here next time when I talk with another creative person about how jazz inspires their life and work. I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My production engineer is Curtis Heidolf. You can listen to Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired on all podcast platforms and at jazzinspired.com. Our opening music was Airmail Special, and the mid-break music is a smooth one from my CD, High on Fats and Other Stuff. The closing music is Old Fashioned Love from my CD Trio. I'm on piano with my Cashem on sax and Chris Flory on guitar. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is sponsored in part with generous support from our listeners and Paige at 63 Main in Sag Harbor, New York, serving organic microgreens and vegetables grown on their own energy-efficient indoor and outdoor aquaponic farms. Better taste, happier planet. Visit Paige at 63Main at opentable.com. And please tell your friends about Jazz Inspired and help us spread the word. For more information, visit jazzinspired.com or judycarmichael.com. <laughs>